if you would read um, the scripture um, we are going to look into today. Uh, this comes from Mark um, 12, 28 through 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked, what commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. And tr- you truly have said, or you have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all your heart and with all understanding and with all the strength. And to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than a whole burnt offering and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. So if you've been with us for any time, <laughs> you know that we are going through a sermon series called The Encounters with Jesus. And this is one of the last encounters that Jesus has during the last week of his life. He is triumphantly entered into Jerusalem. We'll talk more about that next week on Palm Sunday. And he's been in the temple teaching. And here he provides a summary of who he is and who he wants his followers to be. It's kind of, we're going to sum it up at the very end of what what Jesus' life is. And he's going to say, this is what I'm about and this is what I want you to be about as well. We went on a little vacation for Michael's spring break to Pagosa Springs this last week, and we stayed in an Airbnb, and I noticed a little bit of water on the floor uh, the first night we were there in an odd place in the first floor bathroom, and it didn't make sense that it was there, but it was, it was you know, it was water on the floor in a bathroom, not, not a super big deal. Well, as I began to listen and I was getting ready for bed, I, started, I could hear uh, water running, and it didn't make any sense, and I checked the bathroom there, and I went up and checked the upstairs bathroom, and I kind of uh, pass it off as the kids' sound machines. I thought, well, they're right above us. Maybe that's what I'm hearing. But the sound persisted, and it turned out my inclination was right. It was running water, and the next day I saw more water on the bathroom floor on the first floor, and then going into the kitchen, they had like a little nook area to store all your things and hang your jackets and stuff, and there was actually like a puddle of water on the floor there. We called the homeowner, we called the host, and uh, it turned out that the the homeowner who did all the work on the house had nailed two nails into the copper pipe, and they were able to fix it. We were able to stay in there, but the noise that I thought was water was indeed water. Our ears are always awake. We can't shut them off. This is how our alarm clocks work. This is why I wake up to the dog's noises in the middle of the night thinking someone has broken into our house, but it's just Haley rolling around uh, making all the noises she makes. This is why my brother-in-law yells at me when we share a hotel room and I'm snoring all night long. Uh, We have eyelids to close our eyes, but we don't have ear lids. Our ears are always open. Gordon Hempton is an acoustic ecologist, and he's traveled the world over, and he's recorded sounds all over the earth. And he says, silence 
is an endangered species. It's on the verge of extinction. Now, he defines silence not as the absence of sound, but the silence from modern life. He's listening for all the sounds that have nothing to do with modern life. So no refrigerators running, no lights buzzing, no car doors or engines running. It's hard to get away from these sounds. He says silent places are those where there is at least a 15-minute noise-free interval. So not several hours, just a mere 15 minutes without some electronic or modern life interruption. He says there are, are only 12 of these places left in the U.S. There is a lot of noise pollution in our lives. It's hard to know what is essential. We are told so many stories about who we are, about who God is. If there is even a God, we're fed stories over and over and over again. We constantly have new stories and noise coming into our lives. And the same is true in Jesus' day also. In our passage, Jesus just spent a significant portion of his day answering questions from the religious rulers of the days of the day, questioning his authority. Should they be even paying taxes to Caesar? What's the truth about the resurrection? They're all trying to catch Jesus to figure out what he is and who he is about, who he is and what he is about. And now this scribe comes up to him with this uh, with this question. Scribes were experts in the law, in the Torah. Most of the time we translate the word Torah law, but uh, the foundation meaning of Torah is story. It was a story that was given to the Israelites and it was meant to inform them of who they are, who God is, and how they should live in that reality. And here the scribe comes up to Jesus and asks him, what's the greatest commandment, Jesus? What's the most important story that we should be listening to? There are 613 laws in the Old Testament. What's the most important? Can you cut through the noise, Jesus? And Jesus says, hear this. And he sums up the whole law with one command and has two directions. Love. Love God. Love people. Two commands, or one command, two directions. It sounds incredibly simple, but it's actually extremely difficult. So let's listen to them this morning. Love God. When asked which is the greatest commandment, Jesus recites the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The Shema comes from Deuteronomy 16. Shema is the Hebrew or yeah, the Hebrew word for hear. And it's right after the Ten Commandments. It reminds the Israelites that they are in relationship with God, with the Lord. It was a prayer that devout Jews would have prayed aloud multiple times a day. There are two aspects of the Shema. First of all, it places the nation of Israel in relationship with Yahweh God. This is the God whose name is in all caps, the Lord in our Bibles. It delineates the personal name of God. Yahweh was the revealed name that God gave to Moses before he delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. This is the God who delivered them, and this relationship is different from all those nations that surrounds them. So when they get into the promised land, this is the God that they were going to worship. They don't have a pantheon of gods. They worship one true God. This is their God. This is the God that Israel possesses as they can possess this God. Just like the Lord says, you are my people, the Israelites can say, you are our God. 
Secondly, they are to love the Lord from all their being, from their entire lives. Mark says, uh, uses a little Greek preposition here, ek, which, which can mean with, as it's translated in our version, but really has the meaning of out of or from. Our love for God should flow from our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. But love is such kind of a, a squishy word in our modern culture, right? Love has become fickle. It's kind of insubstantial. But the biblical love is anything but squishy. The word used here is agape. And if you've spent any time around a church, you've probably used this word, uh, heard this word used. Uh, maybe you have used it as well. Agape love is the love that characterizes God. It's covenantal love. It's contractual love. It's fidelity, despite all the other options that are out there. It's an I choose you love, despite what my feelings may dictate. It cannot be taken away. It will not be taken away. And so it's elaborated on. This love should come from all our hearts, our soul, our mind, and our strength. Every fiber of our being, a total devotion. Now, I think these four fibers uh, can and have meant different things um, throughout the ages, but I want to offer just a quick application of what they could be for us. To love God with all our heart, it's our emotional lives, it's our affections, it's what we feel. Sometimes we don't always feel that, but it's, it's learning to, uh, to, to turn and direct our emotions towards him. Our soul, our spiritual lives, where do we look for, for transcendence in our lives? Where do we go to experience the spiritual? Is it God or is it somewhere else? our mind, what we think on, our rationality, the internal lives that we live. What's the voice that's going on there? Does it reflect what God has said about us and what we could say about God? And our strength. I, th- our, I think our strength could be our work, what we put our hands to, not just what we do, but how we do it. Are we working? Are we making... Uh, um, Are we drawing more people closer to Jesus by what we were doing and how we were doing it, how we spend our lives? And really, I think all of this is an orientation. It's a focus. And focus is worship. Our whole lives should be characterized by worship. We focus our whole beings on that which we worship, whether it's an image we hope to cultivate, is it a job status, financial security, our hobbies, or even perhaps the God who's revealed himself in Jesus Christ. David Foster Wallace says, Everyone worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Whatever it is we worship, whatever we orient our lives on, we become that thing or person. The problem is so often that even as Christians, we are constantly reorienting our lives to the latest story that we are hearing. We need focus. Gordon Hempton, the acoustic ecologist, which is just, I mean, how cool a title is that? He calls focus controlled impairment. Controlled impairment. Noisy environments, he says, impair our ability to take in all the information. But quiet places calm us. The last of these places are churches. They're calm. They're secure. And it's in these quiet places that we can begin to be changed. In the quiet places of our lives, we get to challenge the assumptions, the stories that have been told that we are hearing about who God is, about who we are. 
and about the world around us. Several years ago, I went on a retreat to uh, a place called the Quiet House at the Laity Lodges outside San Antonio, and I was by myself, not something I usually do, a solitude and silence retreat. Again, not something I'm usually known for, uh, but um, it took a few days, and there was no cell service, so I put my phone down. The first couple of days, I would go by every hour or so, tap it to see if any text had come through or anything like that. Maybe there was cell coverage for a moment. But it took a while to quiet the noise in my life, to begin to hear uh, the noises, the sounds around me, the nature, the silence that is there, to be able to hear my own heart, to be able to hear what God was trying to say to me as well. And the last night I was there, I was cooking dinner, and it was taking longer than usual, and I was trying to gather all my things up uh, so I didn't leave anything behind. And there was a loft that I'd gone up to and read. So I went up there to double-check that nothing was up there, and I had some time, so I ended up just laying up there. And as I laid up there and stared out the window, silence happened. And I was able to remember who God is and how he had delivered me through life and the promises that he was making and how he was creating in me. How he was creating in me was a place to listen, to hear, and to remember who God is. It was a place to focus my energies toward him once again. We need these spaces in our lives of controlled impairment. I think this is what Sunday worship is. It's a quiet place of controlled impairment. It's a time when we shut out all the other stories in our lives to listen to the essential story. Quiet is the element of discerning what is essential. And I'll admit, I don't always prioritize worship in my life. It is difficult to do this, to set this time aside, both the Sunday morning time, but also the everyday time. I always, I don't always understand it. It's inconvenient. If Even if I'm not designing the worship service, it's hard to go, okay, yeah, we're going to put in the effort to get up, to get our kids ready to go and to leave the house, when it might just be a whole lot easier just to stay and sit and watch TV. But worshiping Jesus impairs the stories that we are fed throughout the rest of the week, the false narratives that we regularly hear and are just noise upon noise for us. It's in this time that we hear again the story of who God is and how he has loved us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This story focuses our lives on God, all of our heart, our mind, our strength, and our soul. We are forgetful people, and we need to be reminded of God's love toward us and our love towards him. This is what worship does. Sunday worship is a quiet place to hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. But Jesus doesn't stop here. He doesn't really even pause just at this first commandment because the story isn't just between you and God. It's also between you and others. He jumps right into the second commandment. He says, the second one is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The first command was pretty commonplace in first century Judaism, but Jesus immediately connects loving God with loving your neighbor. For Jesus, these commands are inseparable. How do you show your love for God? What does that look like? You love your neighbor. This command comes from Leviticus 19 as a summary statement. 
Israel was instructed throughout this chapter not to reap all their grain, to not harvest all their grapes, not to lie, not to steal. Don't judge unjustly. Don't gossip. Leave all these things. Treat your neighbors well. Be generous to them. And all these many sections lead up to the commandment to love your neighbor are grounded in the statement, I am the Lord your God. Our love toward our neighbor is based on our relationship with our God. The order of these commands matter. They can't be switched. How we love God informs how we will love our neighbor. The Christian story is not one that's disembodied or detached love. It's not a kind of mysticism that only exists between you and God. It's only this relationship here, this vertical access. No, it's also um, uh, the horizontal one, but it's not just the horizontal one, right? It's not humanism. We don't love our neighbor without loving God. The, The two inform one another, and they flow through so that we can do both. Again, love can be squishy today. But the love that we have toward our neighbor is the same love that we have towards God. It's the same word that's used, that agape love. Theologian Scott McKnight wrote a book called Jesus Creed, which kind of expands on these verses. And he, takes, he goes through the long implications of what these two commands are. But he says this about love. He says, love, a term almost indefinable, is unconditional regard for a person that prompts and shapes behaviors in order to help that person to become what God desires. Love, when working properly, is both emotions and will, affection and action, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love has the vertical access uh, access to it, connecting us with God, but also has this horizontal axis uh, connecting us to one another. Again, Gordon, the acoustic ecologist, uh, that he was being interviewed and he was asked what he considers to be music. And Gordon replied, he asked himself this question, does it make me want to dance? He said, music is often a reflection of who we are and who we are is what we hear. In more urban areas, the sound, uh, music has the sound of a city to it. In more rural areas, the folk music more reflects the sounds of nature. He, say, he went on to say, in noisy places, people are less likely to help each other. The words are less important than the tone. And in noisy places, we don't hear the tone of voice that we're speaking to with one another. So our, our connection with one another is impaired. We are cut off from a level of intimacy, and we are more isolated. Real listening, Gordon says, is about being vulnerable. Loving our neighbor is vulnerable. Inviting them to dance with us is extremely vulnerable. We often have dance parties in our home. That little space right there is where we do dance parties in the evening. It's how we express our love for one another, how we take joy in one another, how we're vulnerable with one another. Loving our neighbor has to start in our home. We can't be barren of hopes and hope and prayer out in the world and spend all our energies out there and then come home and be monsters. I think too often this is the case. I spend my energies uh, being nice and kind to all the people that I interact with, and then I come home and I take the easy way out of yelling to get attention and uh, people um, to do what I'm asking them to do, the children in particular. Um, you know, we pick fights with the ones that we love the most so often. 
I'm incredibly guilty of this. Now, I'm not advocating that we pick fights with those whom we work with, but maybe we can make some room in our lives so that when we come home, we can have some love and we can love our, our family as we are instructed to love our neighbors. I think this dance that we're invited into spirals out from there. Instead of dancing around our neighbors, maybe we can dance. We can invite them to dance with us. Do we know our neighbors? Do we know their names? Have we been intentional about learning their stories, their families, about their hurts and their hopes? Are we willing to sacrifice our comfort for their, for theirs? Have we invited them over? Would we share a meal with them? Would we share our wine and our grain with them? What about the difficult neighbor? Instead of maybe avoiding him or her, how could we go out of our way to intentionally love them? I think one huge but incredibly understated way to do this would be to pray for them. To take regular time to lift up the needs of those homes around us, even if we don't know what they are, but just to pray for them and what their lives are. Everybody's struggling. Everybody's struggling right now. But to be able to pray for each one and by name and just say, Lord, bless them, watch over them, give their house peace, give them comfort. So we have so little of that this you know, this today in this in this world. I think this is the primary way in which we can connect our love of God to the love of our neighbors. The life of the triune God has often been described as a dance, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit dancing with one another. And when we pray for our neighbors, we are enjoining them, whether they know it or not, in the life and the dance of God. The problem is we're never going to get this right all the time. We're going to misstep. We're going to step on other people's toes. Our dancing is not complete. And we're probably going to fail a whole lot more uh, than we succeed. Though our ears are open, we might be focused on the wrong things, listening to the wrong stories about who we are and who God is. The book of the Old Testament is actually telling the story of how Israel fails over and over again to uphold the law. And most scholars think they rarely did the, they enacted the sacrificial system and the laws of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. They ran after other gods. They failed to love their neighbors constantly. But it's not so much a story about Israel's fidelity toward God. It's about God's fidelity to Israel. Just as he listened to their cries when they were in Egypt, he has heard our cries and sent his son Jesus. At the end of the passage here, the scribe kind of pronounces a, a judgment on Jesus and his answer. He says, you're correct. Good job, Jesus. Loving God and loving others is more important than burnt offerings and sacrifices. But Jesus turns the table once again, and he says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Hear this. In the person of Jesus Christ, we see the ultimate act of love for God and the ultimate act of love toward us when he went to the cross and died for our failure to listen. Jesus shows his love for us through his sacrifice, and he continues to invite, this into the, invite us into this story. Can you hear him? Let's pray. Father God, there are so many stories that we listen to, um, movies, podcasts, news, life, family, uh, friends are all giving us stories. 
And we listen to those and we fail so often to listen to your story. The story of love and of grace and of mercy, of sacrifice, of Jesus coming down and showing us what it means to love you and to love our neighbor. Lord, may we worship him. May we have controlled impairment to focus our lives on him, that our strength, our soul, our mind, and our heart would be caught up in what you are doing, how you are shaping our lives, how you are calling us to greater and greater intimacy with you. Lord, give us uh, ears to hear. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.